against the character and against the justice of God. And while you and I might be proven wrong in a given situation and rightly called out, this is not so, this is not the case when it comes to God. In all things, God is true and God is just, period. So let's read. Um, We're actually going to start reading in chapter 2, verse 25, just to give a little more of the context what we covered last week. Um, So Romans 2, starting in 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. First thing I want us to look at in this passage of chapter 3 is that when it comes to salvation, possessing the word of God is a major advantage. When it comes to salvation, possessing, having the word of God is a major advantage. If you'll recall uh, from last week and from what we just read at the end of chapter 2, Paul has told the Jews that outward circumcision, physical circumcision, means nothing if there hasn't been the inward miracle of regeneration of the heart. That is, salvation you know, being justified and being made right before God, it's not a birthright. It, rather, it's a miracle of God whereby His Spirit changes the heart of the unbeliever. And this actual and miraculous change will become evident in the attitude and the actions of the saved person. So that's what we talked about uh, last week. And so now, the logical question that arises in chapter 3, verse 1, is, well, if that's true, then is there any advantage to being Jewish? Right? If outward circumcision is not what makes us right before God, then what's the point of it? If Jew and Gentile alike are in the same sinful condition, then is there any advantage to being Jewish at all? So you can see the potential 
confusion, and it's very much a legitimate question. And his answer is, yes, there is an advantage. He says, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so he gives one of the advantages here. He says there's much in every way. There's lots of advantages to begin with. This is the first thing, the only thing he really touches on here, and it's a significant one, is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, which is to say they possessed and were keepers of the very words of God. In chapter 1, as we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul recounted how God just let the Gentiles go into their sin. He just handed them over to their sinfulness. And they just wandered further and further down that road of depravity to greater and greater um, sin. However, when it comes to Israel, God routinely spoke to them and came to them and spoke to them through his prophets. And so he called Abraham and he established a covenant with Abraham and then he reaffirmed that covenant with uh, Abraham's son Isaac and then with Jacob again. And then he sent Moses, his prophet Moses, to lead Israel out of Egypt so they could go into the promised land and, and worship God. And he sent prophet after prophet and these things are all accounted for us in the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, so while the Gentiles wandered off into their sin and God just allowed them to go and handed them over to their sin, God came after the nation of Israel and came after them and spoke to them. God gave them a law that enabled them to worship him rightly. They didn't have to guess what God might want to see happen, what he might require. They didn't have to guess because he told them. He spoke to them through his prophets. And as it was written down, later generations could hear of it from their parents and grandparents and they could read about it and they could know exactly what God required. They weren't simply left to their own sin like the other nations. And when they strayed, God regularly sent prophets to call them back, to repent, to come back to covenant faithfulness with their God. Again, contrast that with the Gentiles whom God handed over to their sin. And so it's just a fact that God didn't treat every nation the way that he treated Israel. God spoke to them. And so even though salvation is not just an inherited birthright that was just automatic for all of the physical descendants of Abraham... And even though, like the Gentiles, the Jews too were under sin and inherited Adam's sinful condition, the Jews still did have a tremendous advantage over the rest of the world because they possessed the very word of God. So last week I mentioned uh, how if we want to find evidence for our salvation, uh, we should look for evidence of a changed heart. To examine the things that we desire and the things that we do you know does it bother us when we find ourselves failing again and sinning again does that grate on us does it bother us you know is there a longing there a desire for holiness 
No, do we pursue that? Do we look forward to the day when we'll be totally rid of our sinfulness and with God? And one of the things I said was, we ought not to look back merely at a prayer we prayed as a child or the verses we learned or the mere fact that we grew up in a church or the fact that we may have cleaned up a few big major sins in order to find our confidence and assurance. And the reason I said that is because, as Paul made clear, if none of those things are accompanied by a renewed heart, then they don't mean anything. They don't get us anywhere. So just like physical circumcision without the renewed heart meant nothing to the Jews, for the Jews. So then the logical question for us is, is there any advantage to any of these things? Is there any advantage to teaching our kids the Bible? Is there any advantage to learning God's word? To teaching the truths of scripture? To learning and memorizing scriptures? To studying the word of God? To sharing the word of God with people? To inviting people in to hear the word of God proclaimed here at church? If none of that is a guarantee of anything, is there any advantage to any of that? And the answer is, absolutely there is. There's a tremendous advantage to that. We have with us, we have the very words of God. And where the word of God is, where it is read, where it is studied, where it is communicated, where it is memorized, there is a tremendous hope that God will prove mighty to save. Right? Romans 10, 17, later in the book, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ is God's ordained means, uh, that is the way that he has chosen to save people, is through the word of Christ. And so we have tremendous hope when the gospel and the word of God are present, because that's how God chooses to save people. And this is why we, as a church, must, to the best of our ability, um, allow this word to speak. This is why the word must be priority, the priority in all that we do. You know, whether it's me here speaking or whoever, um, my words mean nothing if they are not accurately explaining and applying the Word of God. And so even though you know, just simply learning some verses is not a guarantee of anything, there's a tremendous advantage here. We have great hope as long as the Word of God is with us. I grew up um, going to church. I grew up uh, learning the Bible and while I was confused about what it meant through much of my childhood and my adolescence, I, was at, I had a tremendous advantage over the person who grew up knowing nothing of the Bible, over folks who are in, we just saw videos of people who really have no access, as far as I know, if I understood that right, to the Word of God. They're in a village and they don't have access. They're, Though we have the same sinful condition, there's an obvious advantage being around and learning the Word of God. However, look down to verse 9. Though there's an advantage, what then? Are, the, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
Listen, just because we grow up in the church, it doesn't mean we don't have the same sinful nature as those who don't grow up in the church. And it is in that regard that we're no better off. Right? The Jews, they had the oracles of God, but they also shared the Gentiles' condition of sinfulness. And in that sense, they weren't any better off. That is why just an outward circumcision wasn't the answer. They needed an inward change of heart. And so we have a tremendous advantage and a great hope when we have the word of God, but we have to recognize that our children, for example, they still come out of the womb as sinners. And they don't just need some memory verses or some alternatives to the partying life out there. What they ultimately need is a new heart. And so, yes, absolutely, we teach them the scriptures, we teach them the Bible, we get them to memorize it because it's our hope that through this, God would be pleased to save, to save our kids. But they need new hearts. And it's the same, the same is true for everybody. Everyone who walks through the door there, the people you work with, the person you sit beside on a plane or whoever it may be, When it comes to, to salvation, possessing the word of God is certainly an advantage. Um, the second thing, it's an advantage, but regardless of how people respond to God's word, God remains faithful and true. Regardless of how people might respond to that word of God, God remains absolutely faithful and 100% true. So Paul anticipates another question or an objection in verse 3. Let's read that. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Talking about the Jews. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So the question is, if salvation is a miraculous working of God, and if God's word is in a big advantage and it's powerful, how do we explain the constant unfaithfulness of the Jews throughout their history? Right? If God promised to save them, to be their God, why do so many of them reject God? Why do they now, in Paul's day, reject even Christ, their own Messiah? Does this therefore mean that God was unfaithful? Did God say he would do one thing and then not pull through with it? That's what's behind this question. And of course, Paul gives his answer, by no means, by no means is God faithless. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. In other words, even if everybody turned away from God, he would still be true. He would still be right. All that would prove if everybody turned against him is that they are all liars and God is right. And it's because of this reality that he is faithful and true no matter what, that means that when he judges, he is just. Second part of verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Though everyone were to turn on God and accuse him, he would be the one standing at the, at the end of the day 
justified, he would be the one who would prevail because he is true. This is a basic but a very important understanding, part of understanding who God is. He is true. He is true all on his own. He is the standard of truth. He is faithful to his word. So even when we look around us and wonder uh, why things seem so out of control all around us, know God remains true. And then from that place, try to understand what's going on around us. God will not be judged by us. We might look at things and begin to question God's faithfulness because things just kind of seem out of whack or untrue, but we've got to stop there and remember, no, God is faithful. He is true. And then work back from there to understand. So even if everybody were to accuse God of being faithless, he would be vindicated at the end of the day. And so even though the Jews were consistently unfaithful in the Old Testament, and then in Paul's day even rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself, the conclusion is not that God is unfaithful in keeping his word or unable to keep his covenant promises. It's not that he lacks the power to save. What Paul is saying is that because God is true, there must be another explanation for this. And this is going to prove very important in the book of Romans, this concept, um, especially when we get to chapter 9. And we're we're going to glance at that in just a moment. Um, But first, uh, let me just read for you John 3.33. John the Baptist, when he's declaring how he's got, you know, Jesus is now on the scene, so to speak, and, and and a rising in influence, and John talks about how he must decrease and Christ must increase. Um, He goes on as he's comparing his ministry with Christ. He says, he who comes from above, Jesus, is above all. He who is of earth, John the Baptist, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So those who receive the testimony of Christ are acknowledging God is true. John 8, 26, Jesus says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. God is true. You know, we read in, uh, Pastor Harley read in, in Job, um, and we sang about it as well. Who has given counsel to the Lord? Nobody. You know, God is God. We are not. He is true. If many Jews rejected God and their Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, God still remains true. And so we might, we look out at the state of our world and it looks like a mess and maybe we wonder why is God really behind this is he really in control well Paul has answered part of why our world looks like a mess in chapter one and that's because of human sinfulness that God's handed us over to 
So there's part of the answer, but we also must remember that in it all, through it all, God's true. Likewise, we might look out at the state of Christianity in our world and right around us, and we might wonder, why all the issues? Why so much unfaithfulness and sin? Why have I been burned or hurt by people who take the name of Christ? Why do churches split? And when a sense of disillusionment might start to creep in, we must remember that even if every person who professes to be a Christian turned and rejected God outright, God would still remain true and his word would still stand. And so we pick ourselves up and we keep pressing forward because God is true. And he is worthy of our praise. And so we repent where we must and we continually seek to align ourselves, our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes with Scripture, looking always to Christ, of course, who is our righteousness. And so the faithlessness of another does not invalidate God. The faithlessness of another does not prove that his word is untrue. How many times have you heard it? People get burned by someone who calls themselves a Christian. They see some issues in the church and they go, I'm done. Well, that, that doesn't prove that God is untrue. The fault is not on God. Third thing, humans are responsible for their actions and God will judge justly. We are responsible for our actions and will be judged justly. In verses 5 to 8, Paul picks up on a line of reasoning that is false but could possibly arise out of what he has said. He calls this line of thinking merely a human line of reasoning. And evidently, he's even been charged with this. Well, what's the issue? Let's read 5 to 8. But if our righteousness, or sorry, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. There's a certain sense in which um, the sinfulness and unrighteousness of mankind serves to highlight the purity and the righteousness of God. In the same way that experiencing darkness helps us understand better just how bright the sun is. When we see the sinfulness of man, we understand a little better of how pure and holy and righteous God is. And so we know that God is so faithful and he is true, he is the standard that if everyone turned on him, um, he'd remain innocent and true. And in a sense, if that actually happened, um, it would really just highlight his greatness. Wow, uh, God's the only one standing at the end of the day. That's quite something. He really is holy. So the objection raised is if our sin really serves to make God look better, then aren't we really doing him a favor? 
If my lie highlights the gloriousness of God, then isn't it unjust for him to punish me? I mean, I'm making him look good. So isn't the logical conclusion here that we just sort of carry on in sin so that he'll look even better the more we sin? That charge comes in verse 5 and in verse 7. And in between there, in verse 6, Paul gives a partial response. If sin served to make God look better, and that if this sinning was actually therefore a good thing, then God would have no grounds to judge the world. And yet, we know from Scripture that God will judge the world. Therefore, it cannot be true that our sin is actually a good thing. I mean, it sounds kind of absurd that someone might be arguing this, and yet they are. They've even accused him of saying it. So Paul's saying he will judge the world, and therefore it's 100% false to think that continuing in sin would be good in any sense, any way. So even though God is seen more glorious through human sinfulness, and even though God accomplishes good purposes through human sinfulness, human sinfulness still makes us worthy of condemnation, and we are responsible. So let me give an example. Can Judas boast to God? You know, if it weren't for me, Judas, betraying Christ, he wouldn't have gone to the cross, he wouldn't have made atonement for sins, no one would be saved, everybody would still be lost. So in a sense, God... I did you a favor and helped you out, and I actually did the nicest thing I could have done for everybody because I betrayed Christ to ensure that he died on the cross. And so in that sense, it's actually a good thing, and God owes me one. I mean, I did everyone a favor by betraying Christ. I mean, in a sense, it's true. In fact, I mean, Acts 4.27 says this. The believers are praying this way. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So again, this line of thinking would say, well, if that's true, that their sin actually served the purposes of God, and enable him to show his gloriousness at the cross, then I suppose Pilate and Herod and Judas and all the others are off the hook. Well, Paul's saying, no, (laughs) not true. God is true. Although God is sovereign over all things, and although our sin in one sense reveals God's holiness all the more, or highlights it, and although it's used, our sin is used by him for good purposes, we are all responsible for our sins. Well, is this just of God to do this? Indeed it is. Paul says he will be just. He is just in his words. He will prevail. And so wrestling with how God might 
plan and predestined the death of his son for a good purpose, and yet it involved human sinfulness along the way to accomplish it, through it all, God is just. We need to start with that premise. Anytime the matter of God's sovereignty is raised, the question regarding God's justice is not far behind. If God is sovereign over all things, can he still judge? And the answer is, yes, he can. God is true. He is just. And it's on us to to sort through that. In chapter 2, Paul stated that true salvation was a work of God's spirit where he changes the heart. And as he moves into chapter 3, he starts to explain how the Israelites' unfaithfulness fits in with God's plan. But then he he leaves it after verse 8, and and in verse 9, he kind of goes back into his treatise on sin, on human sinfulness. However, he picks this up again in chapter 9. So many commentators, and I think they're right, see a link between what he begins here in chapter 3 and what Paul comes back to later in chapter 9. And so here in chapter 3, um, at the beginning of it, he, 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 when he's addressing the advantages of the Jews, he says, to begin with, which should also be translated, first of all, it's like he begins a list of advantages, but then he only mentions one. And so flip over to chapter 9 just for a moment, verse 4. Here Paul, again, begins to reference some of the advantages that the Jews had. They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there again are the advantages. And then in chapter 9 still, he picks up again this question about whether God's word failed or whether he was unfaithful to the Jews in the fact that some of them wandered away. So how do we explain the fact that the Jews would wander? Verse 6 of chapter 9, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Remember, God is true. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So even though, Paul's saying, even though it might appear as though God's word failed because the Jews have rejected God, that's not the case. God remains true. And so as chapter 9 progresses, he gives the real explanation of why it is that the Jews have rejected their Messiah. And he goes on to say, one of the reasons is because of God's sovereign purpose in election. And this is one of those areas where we human beings want to judge God and say that cannot be. We want to insist that election cannot possibly be so because that would have to make God unjust, would it not? 
to choose some and not others. But remember, we start with the premise that God is just. And so if God's word is going to tell us that election is true, then it's up to us to deal with it and understand and try to wrestle with how election works alongside of God's justice and his faithfulness. So one doctrine does not undo or fight against another. Okay, what the Bible says about God's justice is not overthrown by what the Bible says about election. What the Bible plainly says about election is not inconsistent with what it says about God being true and just. And then when Paul in chapter 9, again, he anticipates the objection of, of the accusation that that would make God unjust. He anticipates that. He knows it's coming. And so in, in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says I will have, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Down to verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Paul, doesn't, Paul does answer the question, but not in the way we would really like him to. We would like him to wrap it up into a nice, neat little bow for us, but he doesn't. His answer is essentially, God is just, and mankind is responsible, period. He's telling us, don't make the mistake of judging and waving your finger at the creator of all. Right? If this is the way God says it is, we cannot come back and say, that's impossible. We don't stand over God's word and say, it can't be this way. We don't come to it like that. We allow it to inform us. So again, who can teach the one who knows all things? So God is telling, or what God through Paul is telling us not to do. And so I, I mentioned chapter 9 um, because chapter 3 sort of begins it, and then he kind of seems to put it on hold and come back to it again in chapter 9. And it's kind of on this foundation that God is just. He is true. And starting from there, we try and piece that together. How does that fit then with the fact that he would judge people and yet be sovereign over everything at the same time? I've heard it... described like this before, and I've also tried to describe it like this before. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are like two parallel lines. They're both true, and in our minds, it's hard to understand that. They don't really cross over. They don't really seem to fit together nicely. And in our finite brains, it's hard to fathom such a thing. And yet, this is how God's word presents these. And so we must submit ourselves to it. 
And we mustn't make the mistake of imposing our view of justice on God. We, the clay, must not make the mistake of questioning and judging the potter. And, and in so doing, in questioning his justice, do away with his sovereignty. And at the same time, we must not get so excited with the sovereignty of God that we do away with the responsibility of man before God. And in fact, if you keep going in Romans chapter 9, as Paul's answering the question of why are the Jews unfaithful, one of the answers is God's sovereign purposes in election. The other is because the Jews have rejected God. So one is, this is God's sovereign choice. The other is, the Jews are responsible for rejecting God and trying to pursue their own righteousness. That's the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10. So again, you have right there God's sovereign choice, and yet at the same time, the Jews are responsible for rejecting God. So although salvation is a sovereign and miraculous work of God, we don't sit back with a fatalistic view. Well, God's just going to work it out however he'll work it out because he's sovereign. That's not what the Bible would have us do. The people around you, every one of us in this room, every person out there will answer to God and are responsible for their sins. And where God's word is present, where the gospel is, we have great hope of salvation. And so we go and we send people to go. We read the Great Commission. Well, why bother going? Because he tells us to go. The gospel is the means through which God has decided to save people. And so we go. Well, if God's sovereign, doesn't that mean there's no point in going? No, that's not what the Bible would have us. We cannot land there and be faithful to Scripture. And so, although our sinning in some way reveals the greatness of God, we do not celebrate sin in any way. Well, I sinned again, but hey, God looks great. We don't know. We are to repent of it and to trust in the righteousness of Christ. And by the way, chapter 6 is going to pick up on this issue again. Should we keep sinning that grace may abound? I mean, if God is the one who saves and it's a gift of his grace, do we just, well, carry on because who cares? And again, Paul's going to say, no. <laughs> it's when we have trouble making sense of what's going on around us. We need to remember God is true, even if everybody else turned on him, though everyone else would be a liar, God is true. And we must be careful to not decide how God can and cannot operate before we come to Scripture, to impose our understanding on him before we come to the Word. We must submit to Scripture's description of, how, of who God is and how it is that he operates.
I've said that mankind is responsible for our sins. We're all responsible for our sins. And that ought to trouble us, that should disturb us. And I just want to say, if that does terrify you, the thought of standing before God, who's just, we saw in chapter 2 last week, will expose the secrets of men in that day. If that does terrify you, the gospel call is to repent of your sin and to turn to Christ, to, to trust in Him, to believe in Him. You do not have righteousness of your own. And all of this is leading up to chapter 3, 21 and on, where Paul just erupts into the righteousness of God given as a gift through faith in Christ. And believe me, it's really hard to spend as much time as we have in the first three chapters of Genesis or of Romans without getting to that point because it's the it's the best part. <laughs> and so the call is to repent, place your faith in Christ. And if and if anyone here has had that attitude of, well, God's sovereign, he saved me, he's going to see me through to the end, and if you've developed a lazy attitude towards sinfulness, the call again for you, for us, is to repent of that attitude. If we've been guilty of saying, of judging God and imposing our view of what he must look like onto the scriptures without coming to scriptures first to get our view of who God is and how he operates, we ought to repent of that as well. God is true. God is just. Period. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And God... There are some tricky things in your word, and Lord, we never want to uh, make things harder than they are, but the truth is there are some parts that are hard to reconcile, how you could be sovereign overall, and yet how you could still hold all of mankind responsible for our sin, and you don't wrap it up nicely, though you give us enough to be able to trust you, to know those are both true, and to trust that you will judge justly Surely you know better than us. And Lord, I pray that we would take great comfort and joy in that. And Lord, even the broader application of the fact that you are true, God, that we can trust you in all things. If things seem out of control in our own home or with our health or with whatever the situation, you are true. You are not unfaithful. May we start there. God, we praise you that um, you, you have revealed yourself in your word. The fact that we are here, that we are hearing your word, that we hold copies of your word is a tremendous advantage to us. May we not squander it, Lord. May we open the word and study it. May we proclaim it liberally to people around us. May we be diligent in teaching our children. Lord, not just so we'd fill their brains with some things, but with the hope that you would save them as your word is communicated. Give us the strength to do that. God, we just give you praise and thanks. You are worthy of all. We declare that you are true, though everyone were a liar. You are just when you speak. 
And Lord, no one is able to stand over you and judge you. You are God. We are not. Help us, Lord, to submit to you, to submit to your word. We love you because you first loved us. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.